You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, over the next three weeks, I'd like to work through a series of sermons with you called Held Together. Uh, The title of the series draws uh, its name from the passage that will be our call to worship for these three weeks, the passage from uh, Colossians 1, where St. Paul, in singing that him about the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the, the centrality of Jesus Christ, says that in him, in Jesus, all things hold together, all things uh, cohere. And in a fragmented and fragmenting world that seems to constantly challenge us to find ways to stay on top and hold things together, it is good to hear Paul's invitation to consider what it means to live a life that is not something that we simply hold together, but a life in which we are held together by Jesus Christ, because in Jesus Christ all things cohere. And so I want to take us through three passages in in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in order to explore this idea, because uh, Paul himself is in a, a fragmenting situation with the Corinthian church. He is being criticized on a number of fronts uh, with them. And if you want to see um, the Paul who is uh, a little undone uh, by, a, by a difficult congregation, read Second Corinthians uh, sometime. We don't really see necessarily the, the, the confident teacher. Um, sometimes we see the, the one who's frantically trying to defend his ministry and get the ear of people who don't trust him in Second Corinthians. He's, he's accused of vacillating, of of not being an apostle who is really a true apostle because he was so late in coming to the game that that his words are either too simplistic or too complex. Uh, In a number of ways, Paul's um, criticisms that he is enduring lead him to direct the congregation at Corinth to a different set of lenses through which to view him and to view all of life. So Paul's answer to them is to redirect the conversation And to essentially say, look, this is not about me, but this is about the one to whom I belong. And our text today, what is happening is that Paul is answering a charge where he didn't um, come to Corinth like he had promised he was going to, and instead made his way from Troas to Macedonia. And so he is he's trying to explain that decision. And so um, let me cough and then let's read the text. Sorry for those of you on the radio for that. That was probably obnoxious. Um, uh, Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians 12. Did someone brought me some water? Oh, good. Thanks, Joanne. She has a little monitor back there that she watches the sermon on. So she saw me struggling, I guess. 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 2, 12 through uh, 17. When I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. But my mind could not rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said farewell to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not peddlers of God's word like so many. But in Christ we speak as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God and standing in his presence. Would you pray with me, please? Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. So grant us peace. Peace to rest in your presence, to find our center in you, and to listen for your voice that's inviting us to participate in what you are doing. For we pray in your name. Amen. When I was uh, in the summer after my sixth grade year, uh, my family took a trip to Disneyland. Actually, growing up in Southern California, we took an annual pilgrimage to Disneyland. Uh, But this particular trip, the summer after my sixth grade year, was going to be a little bit different. It was uh, uh, a gift that our parents were giving my sisters and I. We each got to bring a friend um, to go uh, to Disneyland. And uh, each of us, uh, with our friend, were going to be able to kind of navigate the park by ourselves uh, without, uh, not in one big group, which sounded just glorious to a 12-year-old boy, uh, two 12-year-old boys, that we were going to conquer the park. Um, my friend Mark and I got together to kind of plan out our trip through the park and how we were going to attack it. And uh, we knew that as soon as we came up Main Street and we met in that little um, area at the top of Main Street that we were going to head first to Fantasyland because it was the closest. And the first stop was going to be the teacup ride. Well, we did that. Um, we made it to the teacups and... Uh, uh, Mark and I uh, were ushered into a cup that had two high school guys in it as well. <laughs> so here are these two sixth, sixth in between sixth and seventh graders uh, in the, the cup with these two high school guys. And um, they told us when we got in, said, hold on to this wheel here because we're going to turn it and you can help us turn it really fast. They were nice guys, um, or so we thought uh, at that moment. <laughs> And uh, so we got into the teacup. It starts, you know, if you don't know about what the teacups are, they're these little teacups from the, you know, the, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party kind of thing uh, from Alice in Wonderland. And, and it's on this big circle that goes around like this. And then each of the teacups are on their own little circle. So you have something akin to a centrifuge that, that divides blood cells. Um, <laughs> and... Um, so we got in, and I was, I was there, you know, with my hands on the wheel. But it became very obvious as we began to spin that my hands were small and theirs were not, and that they were moving much faster than me, and that they had more developed abdominal muscles than I did. <laughs> because as much as I tried to stay centered over that wheel, the, the, the force kept driving me back. And I tried to pull myself in several times, and it wouldn't happen. And the guys, the two high school guys, were just, you know, practically in a trance, you know, moving that thing around. 
And I was like this. <laughs> so our the, the ride finally stopped after what seemed like about two hours. And um, we got off. I could barely move. Uh, I did not throw up, but I wished that I had. And Mark and I went and sat at a table uh, nearby, and I think it took me about 30 minutes uh, to feel like going anywhere. And I think that image of the teacups is what I want us to hold on to, um, no pun intended, but to, to hold on to that image as we move through this series. Because it's an image of life that I think all of us have experienced at some point and, and maybe constantly experience with each new sunrise that something happens to thwart our plans for how we're going to stay centered, that we've got all sorts of of plans about how we're going to stay on top of things, how we're going to stay in the middle of things, how we're going to stay centered. But somehow the circumstances of life throw us to the circumference, and we have a hard time working our way back in. And it makes life primarily about the struggle to get back to the center where we can hold it together again and stay on top. We get our plans in place in life, and then something happens to pull them apart. The diagnosis comes up. The Dow falls over 600 points in a day. The company decides to downsize. The relationship breaks up. The equity in the house goes away. Life then becomes, it seems often in light of these things, an attempt to build hedges against the contingencies. And it's an exhausting kind of vigilance to have to hold on to all of the what-ifs that might happen to throw us off center and to try and prepare for them. It's also exhausting to try and wrest control after we've lost it so that we can get back on top again. Either way, if we're in the center, we don't stay in the center for very long. And it's exhausting work to try and keep ourselves there. I think St. Paul offers a corrective, though, and that's what I want to explore with you over these weeks. And the corrective that he offers is simply that life is set in a bigger context than the one where we spend our waking hours engineering and achieving and seeking to maintain our victory over those fragmenting forces. That life is not merely about acquiring and holding on to what belongs to me. Rather, life is primarily about belonging to the one in whom all things hold together. So in our text, as I mentioned, uh, Paul is dealing with criticisms being leveled at him. In this particular case, he had been um, up in Troas and was going to make his way down to Corinth as he had promised them. Uh, But needing to be with Titus and also seeing the work of God that was going on in Macedonia... Um, he felt called to to change his plans and and to go to uh, Macedonia instead of down to Corinth. And what happened for the Corinthians is that this was yet another example of the weakness of Paul. 
In 1 Corinthians, we have uh, Paul uh, recognizing one of his challenges there is the, the negative comparison. He's being negatively compared to another pastor named Apollos, and, uh, who seems stronger and, and better and that, that people like more. And, uh, and here, once again, he has failed to come through, uh, failed to be enough for them. And so what Paul does in response in our text today is he invites them to look at life through a different set of lenses. And he, in effect, says, life is not about me accomplishing my version of my story or me fitting into your version of your story. Life is primarily about how all of us are choosing or not choosing to participate in Jesus' story. And he says to them, you're right, I didn't come to Corinth. You're right, um, I was in Troas and I went to Macedonia instead. But let me tell you about that. He says, irrespective of where I went, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, what's Paul saying here? Well, he's not saying, you don't matter, Corinth, and I was just doing the will of God, so shut up. He's saying something very different than that, and he's using the image, a very common image in that first century environment of the, of the Roman triumphal processional. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph, just like one of those parades of a conquering Roman general. Wherein, after the victory in the battle, the conqueror leads through the city, leads in tow through the city, the slaves that he has captured, the wealth that that he has uh, looted from the, the, the conquered city, and parades it in front of Rome and says, I have won. Now, is Paul saying that God is leading him as the conquering general? No. He's saying that irrespective of whether I came through for you or not, I am still the bond slave of Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered. I am in his toe. I am the one who's been conquered by him. And therefore, what I give thanks for is that I'm always a participant in what God is doing uh, and, and a part of the parade that, that he is choreographing. The story is never about me, says Paul. It's never about my victory or about whether I am a failure in your eyes. It's not about my victory. The story is about participating in the victory of Jesus. So you're right, says Paul. I didn't come through for you. I wasn't enough. I failed. But I belong to the one who has conquered I belong to the one who is enough. And the value of life is measured not in terms of my adequacy or my victory, but in that I am a participant in God's triumph, conquered by and now belonging to Jesus Christ. It's a completely different set of lenses. For it takes us out of the center. It, t- it makes us a, p- a part of something bigger than ourselves that is, that is going on. And if we can hold on to that image, I think we begin to deal with the fragmentation of life 
in a way that gently receives it and yet is not completely overwhelmed by it. So Paul expands on this with two other images. He goes on to use the image of a fragrance or a scent and also the image of a salesman. And he says, you know, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. We smell like Jesus. It's not, you, you think, and here's what Paul is saying, you think we stink. But the odor that you're receiving is the odor of Jesus Christ. In the nostrils of some, that is the smell of life. In the nostrils of others, it's the smell of death. But either way, either way you receive it, it's the smell of Jesus. And our job is to spread his fragrance, to be the people who smell like him. The lovely thing about that image smell is that it's just kind of something that happens. <laughs> it's, it's an odor that, that we can't help but give off because it's who we are. It's the way we smell. And he says, we're the fragrance of Christ. You're experiencing the stench of your perception that I didn't come through for you, but I need to tell you that I belong to something bigger than my plans or your plans. And then he goes on to use the, the other image, which is the image of a salesperson, and he says, For who is sufficient for these things? For we are not peddlers of God's word like so many, but in Christ we speak as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God, standing in his presence. In other words, Corinth, we've got nothing to sell. And our value is not determined by the numbers of, of how many people respond. Success is not measured in terms of our sales numbers, but success is measured in terms of faithful witness, of standing in the presence of Christ and reflecting his glory to you. We're about a bigger job than just your interpretation or my interpretation of what's going on here. We're participating in the ministry of Jesus. So we give off a scent. We faithfully give witness. We demonstrate that we belong to Christ. And so, Corinth, your business is with him and not with us. The gentleness of Paul's reminder is look to the one who matters. Participate in the life that he is living. Take off the lenses of your own narcissism and put on the lenses that seem that see life differently and see it in terms of what it means for Jesus Christ to be at the center and the one who holds all things together. Paul asked that question in the midst of his argument with Corinth here. And it's a question that I always read with a bit of a sigh. I hear him sighing and when he says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is enough? Part of the subtext of that might be, Corinth, I'll never be enough for you, will I? And that's true. He wouldn't. 
But the other part of that is just the reminder that there's only one who is sufficient. And that's the one who holds all things together. So he asked that question, who is sufficient? How could I have stayed centered? How could I have stayed on top? I love the story in Mark 14 where the woman comes and anoints Jesus before his, his death and burial. She pours that expensive vial of ointment over his head. And as she does so, everyone else in the room is aghast at the waste of what she's done. They all complain and begin to grumble about how that, that expensive perfume could have been sold for a great price and that the money could have been given to the poor. And that's probably true. It could have been. And she could have done that. But I love Jesus' answer. And it's the one that encourages us to put on those lenses of seeing ourselves as participants in his story. For he says simply, leave her alone. To everyone else in the room, after they've complained that she should have done something else, he says, leave her alone. She's done what she could. She has anointed me for my death beforehand. The poor you'll always have with you. You know, your highfalutin talk about the poor. Well, go, go help the poor. But see what's happening right here. This woman has done what she could. She's used what's in her hands to participate in my story because she's anointed me now before my death for my burial. She gets it. She's got the bigger picture, says Jesus. She understands that she's participating in something much bigger than any of you understand. So look at her. Because I tell you, he says, for wherever the gospel is preached, it will be preached in memory of her because she got it. She stewarded what was in her possession and contributed it to the bigger story. She's understood that her job in life is to play her part in my story. So who is sufficient for these things? Who can hold it together? Who can always be enough? None of us. Not one of us. But we try like the devil to prove that we can. And yet how good it is to hear the word that we are enough, not because we've kept ourselves centered or balanced or on top, but because we belong to Christ. How good it is to hear that we don't have to struggle to win constantly because we belong to the one who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, in whom and through whom all things hold together. And as we close, just a word about that victory that he has won. It's important that we look at the character of it to understand this story. For it's good to remember that on first examination, that victory on the cross doesn't seem very victorious. On first scent, that fragrance of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross doesn't seem to smell very good. Because on first sight, what it looks like is nothing more than one more installment in the ongoing story of Roman subjugation. 
that the fragmenting powers of life are going to win and that this Messiah has been killed at the hands of Rome. Because that's what the cross meant to a Roman. The cross was the place where Romans hung people up who didn't obey in order to show everybody else what would happen to them if they didn't obey. It was an act of subjugation, an act meant to induce fear, an act meant to assert the victory of Rome. And yet Jesus turns that all on his head. Because the miracle of the cross is that on that cross, the one who holds all things together joined with us in the experience of all things being torn apart. And as he joined with us in that experience, he declared the truth that not even that, not even those things, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He emptied that oppressor of its power. And so we, we part with these words. It's not going to be about you being enough or you conquering anymore. Because death has lost its sting. And Jesus says, I have conquered. I have overcome the world. And you belong to me. Let's pray. Lord, take us into that place where we understand that we are not the center of the story, but welcomed participants in your story. So speak to us. Help us to hear your invitation and give us eyes to see and energy to participate in all that you are doing. For we pray in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.